Hey everyone, welcome to the Sliving with Sickle Cell podcast. My name is Barbara Biosa and I am a sickle cell warrior, CEO and fashion designer of luxury women's wear clothing brand Dimabai and founder of the Gideon's Treasure Foundation and I am your host today. From the Queen Paris Hilton, sliving means slaying and living your best life. We all deserve to do this. I'm here to bring you all the fabulous tales, the struggles and the triumphs of living with sickle cell anemia and running a business with a disability. There has been many highs and many lows, but I think it's important to share your stories and journey. We will be discussing some important topics and inviting some amazing guest speakers to share their experiences and their journey. This podcast is dedicated to help spread awareness of sickle cell anemia, uplift and build a community of ambitious people who may have a physical or emotional challenges that make being an entrepreneur or following your dreams that much harder. Today's episode, we have a very special guest, Sophia Anna. She is an incredible warrior, an advocate, and all-round badass. She's an author, and I'm so excited to have her on this show. Hi, Sophia. Thank Hi. you so much for joining me. How are you doing today? I'm doing so well, Barbara. I'm so honored to be a part of this podcast, as you know, and just really excited to get into the nitty gritty of, of today. Yay. I'm so excited to share your inspiring and amazing, incredible journey with our listeners. And please, I always start because I, I think it's the best way to get like a good understanding of who you are and your background. So please start by telling me a bit about your background, um, your upbringing and yeah. Oh my gosh, that takes me down memory lane. So um Despite the fact that I have a very strong Australian accent now, um, I was actually born in England. So I grew up in London um, and was actually, it's funny because like, so I was born in, in a place called Brixton and Brixton in the 90s, like you you didn't say that you were ever from Brixton. It was like <laughs> hush, hush, like, you know, like, you know, you're a bit, you're a bit of a kind of like rough around the edges kind of thing. And now like when people talk about Brixton, it's like, oh, it's like this up and coming like fashionable yeah. place to be and I'm like well when I lived there there was like blood on the streets but you know <laughs> so I grew up in Brixton at a very kind of rough time mm-hmm. and I think you know growing up in England um, as a you know a biracial woman with sickle cell disease was you know really challenging like I spent a lot of my childhood in hospital so I guess for those that don't know I was born with a blood disorder called sickle cell disease um, my mum has the thalassemia trait um, and my father has um, sickle cell so my mum is Greek and my dad um, is South American and when they had me they didn't know that they were carriers for this condition. So yeah, growing up in, in, in England where it's always really cold was really challenging to, you know, like remain well, like, as I'm sure you can relate, Mm -hmm. like it's, it's, you're always (laughs) trying to regulate your body temperature. And like, Mm -hmm. so my, my childhood was really sheltered. Like I remember when I was five, like I have very early memories of like, I was never allowed to go swimming in the pool with other kids or. Oh my God. Yes. 
you know, like, you know, my, my friends would like knock on the door and be like, is Sophia home? Like, can she come out to play? And mum would be like, no. Or no. if she said yes, it would be like 10 layers of jackets and coats just to oh, yeah. go outside. <laughs> and so, you know, like my, my childhood was very kind of protected and, you know, like even down to the food I ate, like my mum never let me eat you know, bad food. And for that, like, I'm grateful because now, you know, in my late 20s, I'm very health conscious. But as a, you know, five, six-year-old, you're just, you just want to do what your peers do. And so I would go to school and I'd have like these gigantic, like, sourdough sandwiches packed with like like uh, like uh, what did I have like hummus and like bean sprouts <laughs> oh, and tomatoes and like I'd just be sat in the corner while everyone else was having like white bread sandwiches and cheese <laughs> and no one really understood like you know why couldn't Sophia have the normal yeah. quote-unquote food they, they didn't understand I guess that like even teachers didn't understand the distinction between health and sickle cell and how if you eat you know, unhealthy food, it's going to clog your blood and it's going to have that negative impact. So there are a lot of like, I guess, social situations that were really challenging for me. Like I, I felt like to an extent I felt I fit in in England because I felt like a lot of the people around me looked like me. I felt like I, you know, kind of did assimilate quite well, but then I missed out on so much of my schooling because I was constantly in hospital with sickle crises. So for those that don't know, um, you know, if you have a, a sickling crisis, it basically means that your blood vessels constrict and can't carry oxygen to your vital organs. So that was happening a lot for me, um, you know, as a child. And so from very early yeah. on, I started having blood transfusions to try and, you know, ameliorate that. And, you know, it was, it got to the point where I missed out on so much schooling that it was really affecting my grades. And so yeah. when we, like we decided to move to Australia, um, A, for the weather because my dad like loves the sun and they, my parents were both like, well, if we move to Australia, maybe my crises will decrease because it's warmer over here, less cold, you know, it's not so like, I feel like England is just like that biting cold all Um, the time, like, like, all, all throughout the air, like at least like eight months. Yes, yes. Yeah. And like we had central heating, but it was still cold. It was, yeah, still not enough. Yeah. yeah. So literally, like, yeah. we moved to Australia and as like, you know, for those that don't know, like I live in South Australia, you could call it like a, a small city or like a big country town. And it's, it's humid here, like, you know, 35 degrees in summertime. And so it was very, Ooh. it was a lot. <laughs> It was a lot. And then like, yeah. you know, when I moved here, like I, I was having crises as well. So it was like, even though we moved country, I was still experiencing those issues. And, you know, like starting the schooling system here, as well as like a biracial child, just, you know, just yeah. kind of growing up and finding out about herself, trying to make new friends. I, you know, I found it really challenging. Like I was the only, you know, black child in school. And then to add to that, I was the only black child in school with a health condition. Um, I started, you know, when I started school, I was diagnosed with avascular necrosis, um, which is a bone disorder. And at the time, like, you know, I was, you know, bright, bubbly 13-year-old, like, you know, just going about my day. And then, you know, I had this diagnosis and it was like my life fell apart basically. Um, You know, everything was fine. And then the next minute um, I'm in a doctor's office with my mom and the surgeon saying, you're never going to walk again. Like, 
you're going to be in a wheelchair for the rest of your life and you're just going to have to be okay with that. And at 13, like sickle cell had, you know, it it was a lot. Like it was, and I don't think at 13, like I really knew how to emotionally kind of reconcile what was going on. Like I just couldn't really understand and handle that. And so, you know, going going from moving to a different country and then finding out that you've got this bone disorder and then going through my first two years of high school in a wheelchair um, was very confronting. Oh yeah. Because like a lot of, uh, you know, like the school kids over here, they were, you know, kids are bullies. Kids yeah. Are- oh, my God. It's like the worst period of life I feel like adults are not that mean (laughs) no no but I feel like there was you know especially like you know 10-15 years ago there wasn't much emphasis on disability and what that looked like and yeah I think for me I've always tried to be like when I was younger tried to compartmentalize my life a bit and it's like if I don't have a part of myself that's just for me I'm going to go crazy like if I'm just a patient I'm just this person that is a patient like that that for me was never an option and so as a child like at the age of 13, like I, one of my earliest memories was going to high school. I had a wheelchair and, you know, in those days, kids would, you'd be assigned to a child, to a kid to help you. And they'd be like your helper for the day. And I remember on my like first day of high school, this girl came up to me and she was, she was so ashamed. And so I'm so sorry. My cat's like meowing in the background. I hope you can't pick it up. (laughs) This girl was like so ashamed that she was stuck with the girl in the wheelchair. And, Mm. you know, like just going through that experience was traumatizing for me. And it's like, I remember then I like transitioned from a wheelchair to crutches because I was like, no, I'm not doing this. Like I can't deal with this stigma every day and the shame that that brought. So, you know, I was like determined that whatever it took, I was going to grab a pair of crutches and I was going to limp my way around the school. And I thought in my head, oh, you know, it's going to, it will make life better for me. What I didn't realize is that crutches also stand out. And like my mom at the time was like, let's paint your crutches rainbow colors. And that'll, you know, help you to feel, uh, you know, take that negative stigma away from it. And Mm -hmm. what it really did, unfortunately, was draw more attention to me as different and other. And, you know, I didn't assimilate very well in high school. Like I, you know, really didn't last very long. And it was, I think, like six months into my high school journey when myself and my family made the executive decision that homeschooling would be a better option because at that point my grades were failing. I was getting bullied. I didn't have any friends. Like I remember just kind of sitting alone in the courtyard and I was like labeled like this kind of like this other thing that people just didn't want to associate with. And so for me, it was like, as soon as I started homeschooling and started with a, uh, like it's, it's not really homeschooling because I was a part of a distance learning education program. Mm -hmm. Uh And so there were other people that were, you know, involved with that people that, you know, couldn't study in quote unquote Mm -hmm. normal schools for a variety of reasons. And I kind of feel like I found my people there because, um, you know, like I feel like, we're taught from a very young age where you go to this school and you go to this workplace and you will, Mm -hmm. you know, 
thrive. Um, I feel like not everyone is built the same way. And so we don't all learn the same way. And as soon as I was out of this environment that was so toxic for my mental health, I just blossomed. Like my grades got better. Like I was able to focus on school. Like it was, it was so much, so much healthier for me. And I also didn't feel othered. Like it wasn't like you're, there's something wrong with you because you have a disability. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. Thank you so much for sharing. I feel like the the lack of awareness mm. and like the environment really impacts. Like I understand like why you're such a strong person and why you're such an advocate because that journey, even though it was so painful, I feel like it's built you to, you know, to spread awareness and to be who you are today. But I'm so sorry that you went through that. Do you think your upbringing impacted the way that you kind of manage your silk cell and how you are today? 100%. I think it's 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 interesting because I feel like when we go through really hard life events, like whether that's trauma or, and that comes in the form of, you know, being sick your whole life with an invisible illness that no one can see, no one can feel except you, it does, you know, force you to build this armor around yourself. And, you know, like that has gotten me into trouble in my, you know, personal life and professional life, because now I've gotten to a stage where, you know, I will say I'm fine, even though I'm not, because I have learned to be mm-hmm. so strong and so independently resilient um, that it has had a like a positive and a negative impact on yeah. who I am as a person, I guess. Um, and, you know, like I think going through bullying and, and constantly feeling like you're different um, definitely teaches you to, you know, stand on your own two feet. Um, but yeah. when it comes to sickle cell, I, I feel like my my journey with sickle cell um, and particularly like discovering who I am as a person, like I I think a lot of my, um, you know, like my relationship with sickle cell and my body is also tied up in my sexuality and female empowerment because I think like when we think about people with a disability, we don't necessarily think of a sexual person. But the reality is that women, men, whoever you are, whatever you identify as, we're, we're all human beings and we all have a drive yeah. to feel beautiful and, and have intimacy and have these beautiful relationships. Yeah. Just because you have a disability doesn't negate that. In fact, it probably it's probably more intensified for you because if you do have a disability, it's a lot harder to find a relationship or a person that can relate to you and actually understand what yeah. you're going through. So I think like for me, you know, like my my journey with sickle cell has been really complicated and complex over the years, but I think it really, you know, the, the point where I stopped trying to fight against who I was because there was a there was a real kind of disconnect for a long time where, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, I couldn't consolidate in my head that I was this young woman. Like when I finished high school, like I, you know, I didn't go to university because my grades weren't high enough. And so that was a because of my illness, it was already reflecting mm-hmm. negatively on my career options. And so yeah. I was already at that point taking like a different route in life. I, you know, became a hairdresser for five years and then had to quit the industry because I, um, my disability, my vascular necrosis was getting so bad. I couldn't stand on my feet anymore. And I was like, I can't do this. Um, and so my relationship with myself was a very, um, was very hard because I, 
I always related like my lack of self-love back to the fact that I couldn't do the same things that everyone else could. And I think, you know, like I think people with an invisible illness will be able to relate or at least, you know, like my experience has been when I was a child, there was no expectation on me to be a career woman. Um, there was no, you know, emphasis for me to be successful. Like no one asked me like, what do you want to be when you grow up? Like my parents were very supportive and like honoring of my choices. But when it came to the doctors, it's like, well, we don't know if she's going to be alive next year. Like we want to make sure she doesn't, you know, have a stroke before she's her 21st birthday. And so there was never that emphasis on like, what do you want to do? And so when I got to the age where these questions were coming up and, you know, you, you have a lot of, um, I think social pressure as a woman as well to choose what you want to do in life and, um, you know, be successful and, and make the people around you proud. Um, I got to a point where I had a lot of shame because, um, you know, I finished school, but as I said, my grades went high enough. So uni, it was out of the picture for me. And then, you know, I chose a trade, which, you know, the beauty industry, as I'm sure you're aware, it's not everyone understands it. And it's, it's so complex in how in wrapped up in how we view ourselves as women as well. Um, and so, you know, it was, it was really difficult around that time. And then, you know, like I, I eventually did go back to university and train. So I, you know, I went and did a marketing diploma and got in through the back door that way and studied health. But while doing all these kind of like life events where you kind of like tick a box, basically, yeah, <laughs> like in the back of my mind, I was like, I still have this kind of shame inside of me. And, you know, at the time, like at the age of like, 17, 18, I, you know, was trying out new careers. I was dating and it was really in the dating world and, you know, modeling at the time. I was doing a lot of photographic modeling where I had that real disconnect where it was like, I feel so hot and sexy in studio and I've got my makeup on and I'm wearing fashion clothes. (laughs) And then I left the studio and it's like, I have a very like definitive memory of walking down like a city street wearing heels, long dress, feeling really beautiful, like really, you know, when you're feeling yourself. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I remember like, <laughs> oh, I remember looking in a shop window at my reflection and the girl that was looking back at me and it still like makes me emotional thinking about it because I had such shame when I saw that because it was a girl and I was limping and that's all I could see. Like all I could see was a girl that had a severe disability. I had a uh, deformity in my back, which meant that I would kind of walk hunched over. And that was like from the scoliosis and arthritis in my back from holding up a broken hip for so many years. Cause you've got to remember, like I was diagnosed with avascular necrosis at 13 when I was told that having a hip replacement wouldn't be possible at that age. Yeah. And then carrying that through like into you know, young adulthood, basically, that's a lot of years to be carrying like this degenerative bone disorder. And so my body wasn't, you know, like that of a normal 21 year olds. Like I had all of these kind of what you'd consider older person diseases. And so on the surface, yeah, I look, you know, I, I, I was being photographed. I wore the right makeup. I knew how to talk the talk, but I had this disability that wasn't very hidden anymore and it it caused a lot of shame in me. And then that was like a really monumental moment for me. And then it it kind of, the turning point for me was when I started dating and, you know, in the dating world, you you have your toxic loves. Um, Uh, (laughs) We've all been there. (laughs) 
yeah. <laughs> um, like I like to, there's this really amazing quote that's like, we have three loves in life and the first love is that kind of idealistic love that you know it's normally your your first high school boyfriend your puppy love <laughs> you know and I had that and that was amazing yeah. he was always very understanding of my condition and I have very early That's memories good. of like rubbing my back when I was having a crisis and that was really lovely oh, yeah and then like my second my second relationship was that kind of all-consuming toxic like you know wrapped up in that sexuality mm. I was discovering who I was as a woman and at yeah. the time like he was very focused on exterior and and what you look like and a turning point for me was when we you know we were going to a wedding and he said um I'd sent him a photo of me wearing a dress a short dress yeah. and I said what do you think of this and I was like I, I think I look beautiful and he replied with oh I think you should you know wear something longer and I said, why? And he said, well, to cover your limp. Oh, oh no, Ben, he has to go. <laughs> no, yeah. no, no. And so you should, yeah, like no. that for me, that was, you know, that I guess that was the first time in my life when I realized, oh, it's not just me that can see my disability. Like, oh, my disability is not invisible, really. Like if people can now see that I'm limping and then, you know, there would be comments by family, like, you know, the way she's walking. It was coming from a place of love. Like people would say things like her walking is getting really bad, like as I would age, like it was getting severe. But at the time, like I'd held on to this false sense of hope that like, oh, people still see me as a pretty girl and this won't impact my yeah. life. But that for me was a real turning point of like, you know, internalized shame. I think as women, we tend to internalize a lot of our struggles. And so instead of yeah. me seeing his behavior for what it was, which as you said, was, you know, like narcissism, yeah. I was like, okay, well, I need to fix what's wrong with me. Like I need to cover up. I need to, you know, try harder, try to fake it more. Like I, I had a huge kind of like chip on my shoulder about, making sure I try to walk in a way that would conceal my limp, which is just ridiculous when you think about it yeah. because you can't do anything about your your bones. Um, and, you know, I think that, that for me was a realisation because I think after that relationship ended and I was single for a while, I realised that I couldn't keep running away from sickle cell and avascular necrosis and... I did have to embrace it. I had to embrace all of it, all of the ugliness, the hardship. I had to stop seeing myself as different from sickle cell. Like it was, it's, it's always going to be a part of me. And just because I like to dress up and wear makeup and beautiful clothes, like that doesn't mean, that doesn't negate from the fact that I have a life-threatening illness. And vice versa, just because yeah. I have a disability doesn't mean I can't be beautiful and dress up. Yeah, exactly. And it, I feel like it doesn't define who you are. Like you can be everything you want to be. This is not the definition of who you are as in like, like how I see it. I'm like, I'm not just a girl with sickle cell. Like I'm funny. I'm talented. I'm this, like you're beautiful. You're incredible. You're talented. Like mm. those are the things. And yes, you have this condition and yeah, there are limitations, but there's also like, I think it's finding the balance as like, the blessings that can come from it. And also what you said about the course, the, when you moved to homeschooling and how you found your tribe. And I think that's so important in life. It's just about finding your tribe, finding the people that are going to love you for you and 
and not going to care about your hip because your um, limp, like with the boy you dated, I kind of felt like he knew this already. So if it was a problem, why was he there? Absolutely. So in a sense, it's like, you can't just be like, yes, I'm for it. And then at one point you're like, but I don't like this. It's like, you yeah. want to be around people that accept the whole, like all part of you. And there are amazing people out there. And I know like, I know like I miss a lot of school growing up and like I couldn't hang out with a, lot, a lot with my friends. And I do think like my siblings did help a lot with that at home because I felt like, well, if nobody else likes me or if I don't have friends, at least I have that. And I know sometimes it's different because I, you're an only child, right? I've got so two, I've got two felt- older half brothers in England, but oh, yeah. Oh, but then, okay. They're older. Okay. And Oh, nice. And so like with that, when you find your tribe, the people that are with you, no matter what, and they really support you, all those things don't matter. The bullying, the the people that don't understand, it doesn't matter because it's like, it's all about finding that you've tribe, got your close knit of people. You've, you've yeah. got your people. I, I think it's interesting as well when you have siblings, because like, like you have a, an older sister and a brother? Yeah, and a brother, yeah. Yeah. So do either of them have, if you don't mind me asking, do they have sickle cell? I know, of course. Um, so they so they don't have – my sister found out recently she had trait, which is wow. um, kind of crazy because for years we thought that they both just were like AA, but then she recently got tested and she found out that she had the trait. But my brother doesn't have the trait or the – so it was kind of like that. And I'm the last one. So it was kind of like uh, they almost <laughs> didn't get it. Like they almost didn't have like a child with sickle cell. And then like, and I don't yeah. think, so I think my mom knew she had trait because my mm-hmm. uncle um, who I um, created the Gideon's Treasure Foundation uh, on honor of him, he had sickle cell. So I guess my mom kind of knew she probably had trait, but we didn't know like our dad had it. Mm. So it was that kind of sense of like, and then she had like two kids already that didn't have any and then wow. I came along like, hi. It's, it's amazing like how genetics works. Like you just, it's a mixed bag. Like you genuinely don't yeah, know what you're going to you get. Know. Yeah, it's, it's always interesting to me because I guess as an only child, like I have nothing to compare it to. Like I, mm-hmm. you know, like my parents always saw me having crises and probably experienced vicarious trauma through me. But I, I always mm-hmm. find it interesting talking to people who have siblings because it's interesting like, did it affect them as well? Like, do they have yeah. a deeper understanding of sickle cell now, having grown yeah. up with you? Yeah, that's why I actually had an episode um, I recorded with my sister and I was asking her about, like, um, like what was her experience, you know, like living, like having a sibling with sickle cell? Because I know it does impact them in the sense that they, they're the ones going to the hospital with you. They're the ones that kind of there with you because they're similar age like your parents is kind of like they're also I think it's very hard for your parents to see a child in so much pain Mm. and then with your siblings I think my sister always just pushed me like she always felt like you know you can do it and you can like she was always very supportive so um and they're very kind of I'm they're very kind of strong-willed like I come from a family where everyone's kind of like we're not like oh they're there <laughs> kind of they're more like not tough love because they're caring and they're they're loving and they'll take me to the hospital but I like remember no, there was times, no, no um, crying for too long like you gotta <laughs> yes, you're gonna boss this <laughs> no like for example I remember one time so when I was 16 I was starting getting these crises that were triggered by my menstrual cycle mm. and even till today mm. that's a trigger for me mm. so I think knowing that trigger actually helps me to manage my sickle cell a bit well because I know around that time of the month I don't 
I don't work out. If someone invites me to a party, I don't really go. Like it's one of those things where I'm like, okay, that time of the month is a trigger for me. Like my yeah. body, like any little thing, being outside for five minutes and cold enters, like that's it. Like whereas other f- parts of the month, I'm a bit more manageable. So knowing that has helped me now. But when I was 16, I kind of started going more into hospital every month. Like I was getting crisis and I started to think like, oh my God, this is the adult pain. Like, mm. cause I had a period of time when I didn't go to hospital a lot. And then all of a sudden at 16, it was like coming, going to the adult hospital, having these like chest and back pain. And like, it was so much stronger than the pain I had when I was a lot younger. So that kind of made me a bit afraid of like, oh my God, the f- this is the future. Like that was just a grace period of me not going as much. And now like, this is my life of hospital. And then I remember one time I was like crying again because the crisis came, it was period, like a um, menstrual cycle. And I remember my sister just being like, take the morph. I had like the aura morph at home. Mm-hmm. And I was crying before I took my medication, just like, you know, feeling sorry for yourself mm-hmm. and just like crying because the pain is so a lot. And I remember her being like, just <laughs> take the medicine, it's gonna work. Like, And I just think like that little push of like, mm. not allowing you to just like, Obviously, they allow me to cry and they allow me to be sad about it, but also just like take the medication. They'll get me the hot water bottle. They'll relax me. They'll I use like heat creams, and it's just that like taking control of like you've got this. Like yeah, you know you're gonna get you're gonna get through it. And I think that's very much helped me because now I'm very like when I have a crisis, I'm very proactive. I'm like okay, like think, I know it's painful, but like you know, take your medication. Um, like, cause sometimes you just want to cry. You're like, I'm in pain. Like <laughs> I want to cry. I want to just be like in my feelings. Absolutely. Like action, like take my medicine, you rub the heat cream, get the hot water bottle, be in a warm environment. And like, so it's kind of been like, <laughs> but yeah, so the, it's having the sibling did help. And as well as my parents and like my sister always goes to like the hospital with me and like stays over. So it has helped in terms of even just growing up. So like, I could really relate with your story in terms of like, like not missing school and then not being able to go out as much and, you know, like being invited to places and just like, I can't go or like going somewhere and then having a massive crisis and people are shocked, like what's going on Mm. with her. So I do get that. Um, And I think it's just, again, finding your tribe and knowing that there's people that, you know, care and love you and like, they understand what you're going through and, you, you, th- and then the other people just don't matter because you're like where are they now like what you're doing with your life now those people in school you're like I don't even where you know, are they you, you don't even see yeah where are <laughs> like it it's the interesting how much like your schooling life has such a either positive or negative impact on your mental health but it's like this like the impact of what it is it's so small compared (laughs) to the rest of your life like let it go but I feel like as adults there's a big emphasis I think now on like having therapy and you know um being self-aware enough to know when you've got kind of hidden demons and like issues to address and so much of it stems from childhood and the things we go through as children you know so and I think as well, you know, being a child with sickle cell, it's like now you know how to manage your pain crises. Yeah. But as a child and also, you know, you touched on. Oh, my gosh, yeah. Like taking morphine. I think that's something that we, you know, as a community we don't talk enough about because I know there's so much stigma in the sickle cell community about how we're drug users and, 
I know particularly it's troubling at the moment. I'm sure you can speak to this more, but, you know, in the NHS, getting that support that you need. Um, And I'm just so grateful because here in Australia, it's like you are believed, you are acknowledged and, you know, it's almost protocol that if you go into hospital, you can have pain relief. Yeah. Yeah. but oh, you know, really it's good. still you know, like it's still uncomfortable to talk about. Um, you know, yeah. it's it, it, saying that you've had to have morphine for pain. A lot of people don't understand what that looks like because you know, mo- yeah. the general population there are very far and few b- between times when you need a medication that strong. Like when you think about it, morphine is something they use for post-surgery huge yeah yeah it's crazy that we use this because the one I get at home is the oral morph but when I when the pain has been exhausted at the medication has been exhausted at home so I've used oral morph and I've used um you know so I think I've also been prescribed oxycodone Mm -hmm. but I can't use it at the same time and then the pain is still there and I eventually go to Amy because like I tried hospital is always like the last result for me just of how I've been like brought up with my mom like seeing how much my uncle used a lot of medication and it wasn't good for him because I think medication does um you know cause complications in sickle cells so like we always try to like do it at home and then when I go to the hospital um, diamorphine is meant to be on my protocol but every mm-hmm. time I go there they're like oh we have to ask the doctor and you have to wait hours for the doctor to come and sign it off and you're like but it's there like it's on the protocol this is the same I wouldn't be here if I haven't they're trying to give me oral morph which I've already taken at home and I'm like I wouldn't be here if I <laughs> if yeah. I hadn't taken the oral morph like I'm not coming in here to get like the diamorphine injection just mm, just because just for fun to, just for the sake of it yeah yeah <laughs> just for fun like I rarely come in and then I'm just like why would I be here like I don't even so it's I do get that in the sense like they're very strict on that and I remember when I studied so I studied in New York for one year at my um bachelor degree in fa- fashion and I remember I went to hospital for two weeks and when I got to the hospital and I asked for dimorphine, I the way they looked at me and because I guess you know <laughs> you know America seems like they probably have like more like drug users. I know this sounds it's bad, an epidemic like over there, Barbara. It really is a, is yeah. it's like the amount of documentaries on Netflix that are like the drug epidemic, the this of America. It's like you caused this problem. Yeah. Like <laughs> People were like going yeah. on like insurance claims because they'd broken their leg and then were having, you know, addictions to narcotic medication. But it ruins it for the rest of us because yeah. some of us, and that's it like does. sickle cell I, is so I complex. Like it, the pain, like when people ask me to yeah. describe a crisis, the only way I can sum it up is it feels like you're being repeatedly stabbed over and over again like that is how I describe the pain and so when I describe that because often doctors and nurses will say like oh on a scale of one to ten and I'll be like ten oh yeah always (laughs) ten (laughs) I wouldn't be here if it was yeah if it wasn't ten yeah so yeah but it's so funny because in the hospital in New York they looked at me as in like like how can she ask for this because they weren't giving it at that specific it was a hospital in Manhattan I don't know if they don't have a lot of sickle cell patients there. I don't know, but the way they looked at me when I asked for it, they were kind of like, we don't give this. Like, as in like, who, who come? Cause you know, um, diamorphine is, uh, I think it's heroin. Mm. So it, but like when you take it as in a medication, you're just like, this is just medication that helps. 
But I guess in the hospital, they were kind of like, who asked for this? And I felt so bad. So I was just like, after I'd realized like I recovered from the um, crisis and stuff, I kind of like, that's so strange that they don't have this because this was a normal thing in UK hospitals for like pain relief when it gets really hard. But like in this New York hospital, they were kind of like, we don't give this to like, like, why are you asking for this? And I was just like. (laughs) And, and, you know, like it's it's interesting because, you know, like as a young person as well, our friends around me used to like experiment with drugs and you know when you're young you're expected to kind of relent to peer pressure and as a chronically yeah. sick person I never once had any kind of desire to try no, anything because for me it's <laughs> like no all. I have to take really strong ass medication <laughs> against my will like yeah. I've been off my face I know what it's like and it's like I don't yeah it's I would never want to feel that feel way good. yeah you like, I remember sick, I had, you're vomiting like it's awful 100 yeah. percent I've like I've had friends say like oh, you know, like not now, but when I was younger, like, oh, you know, what's it like? Like it's supposed to be this exciting, thrilling thing. And even nurses in the hospital, (laughs) you know, like when I go in for my blood exchanges, I have Entenox gas, which is known as a laughing gas and usually given to women in labour. Yeah. It doesn't make (laughs) you laugh, (laughs) FYI. (laughs) It just barely takes the edge off and I'm sitting there thinking like, oh, my God, yeah. if this is what I'm having to have needles, how am I going to go with, like, labour because this is this does nothing. Oh, my God, yeah. And, like, nurses are like, oh, how does it feel? Like, ha, 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 like it must be so good. And it's like I feel like un- until you go through acute pain and you understand what that actually means and, like, you know, and I'm sure a lot of people will be able to relate to this who've had a crisis. Mm-hmm. You, yeah. you literally cannot move. Like there have been days and nights when I would crawl from my bed to the toilet. Like that's how much pain I was in. I couldn't move. And so without the morphine and all the other medications that you need, you literally, you can't, you can't function as a human being. And so to minimize yeah. someone's pain like that and be like, oh, it must be so nice to take all these drugs. It's like, if I'm only like, you knew. No. <laughs> Yeah. I'd I'd rather not. Yeah. I'd rather not. And then when you're when I do take like the dimorphine or something and I'm in hospital, like when the doctor tries to speak to me, I can't even stay awake. Like it's so much and it's even just like five milliliters or something. It's really a small dose and you're like, I can't even stay awake. Like I'm barely like I'm just so drowsy. It's so bad. And so like it's so funny because like what you said about your friends would be like, Oh, have you have you tried or peer pressure? Have you tried any drugs and anything? And naturally my my answer would be like, oh no, I've never done any drugs because I'm just like, and then you're realizing, wait, I actually take like the medication, but you're just like, in your mind, you're like, oh, I've never tried anything. I've never done anything. But in reality, it's like, oh, actually your medication is this, this, this. So Exactly. Yeah. Crazy, and, yeah. And, often, and often not, it's not a choice that we have. And, you know, like yeah. people don't talk about the, you know, and that's what we'll get, we'll get into that, but like the effects of, of uh, having to have opioid medication your whole life has a quite detrimental effect on your brain chemistry. And I would, I would argue, like I'm not a, PSA, I'm not a doctor, I'm not a health professional, but as a patient who's lived with this condition my entire life and seen what medication has done to me as a person, um, I would definitely argue that having opioid medication your entire life 
definitely impacts your ability to create the right brain chemistry and bright hormones and make yourself happy yeah. because when you've been on these medications, it, it does have an impact on you. Yeah. Tell us about your channel, The Six Sexy, and how it all started. So The Six Sexy was was born from – so I was so single for, for a while and feeling <laughs> sorry for myself and – one night I remember Googling how to feel sexy with a disability and nothing came up and all the articles on, you know, and I hope I can talk about this. It's just sex related. Yeah. I try and keep it <laughs> M rated. <laughs> but like all the articles on sex were so clinical and so it didn't make me feel sexy to read them. It didn't make me feel sexy to read an article about getting into different sex positions with a disability. And it, it really didn't exist either. Like there was no one talking about how difficult that is and how you, you know, it's harder to get, you know, aroused yeah. and it's, it's, you know, it, it's a weird, really weird feeling like trying to get in the moment when you're dealing with chronic pain. Cause it's like pain is the yeah. only thing you can feel. And so I was like, you know what? no one's talking about it. I'm going to talk about it. And so one of my first videos got, I think, 37,000 views within a year, Ooh, which was, love wasn't a lot at like nowadays by, by any means. That's, still, that's a lot. That's, but I think I spoke really to yeah. a community that felt very like misunderstood, you know, and it was like a, mm -hmm. you know, thank you for seeing us. Like there are, we are out here, like, we have disabilities and we also enjoy being intimate with people and, yeah. you know, <laughs> let's talk about this, you know. And no, I love it. <laughs> I hadn't seen anyone do that and it's like surely I'm not the only young woman in Australia or even like yeah. in the world who is facing these challenges. So I was like I really wanted to create a place where any anyone could come to really like I guess hear someone's lived experience about what it means to be a young woman to have a disability and also be navigating the dating world. Because, you know, at that point as well, yeah. as I said, I was navigating these relationships where, you know, I would take, it was kind of like a bit of a test for me. I'd take a guy to hospital to see how he'd react. And oh, like, if he, if he, <laughs> if he like freaked out, like in the bin, but like, you know, like I didn't have, I had, I've had three relationships <laughs> in my life and my, my third is, I'm hoping my last, um, but, you know, yeah. at the time I took someone to hospital and, and their reaction was that they fainted. And, yeah, <laughs> oh like it was full on, like as the needles were going. Was it the narcissist guy? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, like, God bless him, you know, it's not it's not for everyone. He wasn't ready. Yeah, he was not ready for this life. <laughs> no, and I didn't realise, like, for me it's like, you know, the hospital is such a normal part of my life that yeah. for me, I didn't realize that for a lot of people, it's quite confronting to see six bags mm -hmm. of, of O negative blood and these massive needles yeah. and, you know, seeing someone crying and being in pain. Like for me, that's my normal, but for a lot of people that can yeah. be quite unnerving. And so, yeah. you know, like I wanted a safe online platform where I could really talk about how that made me feel. And at the time yeah. as well, like I really wanted to incorporate fashion and beauty and makeup into that as well. Like beauty is a big part of who I am and it might sound, you know, like narcissistic, but for me, no. like makeup really has a, a very positive impact on my mental health yeah. and 
like even my nurses say like I'll go to hospital and they always have a giggle and tell me how glamorous I am because for me like (laughs) being a patient shouldn't mean being sick like I'll never forget this nurse once said to me like wow you look so healthy for someone with sickle cell disease and I thought that was such an ignorant comment to make because Sickle cell doesn't have a face. And like I recently held a session at work about this and I said, you know, sickle cell doesn't look a certain way. It's not a certain gender. It's the way we, you know, live with it is different. Yeah. It's like a stereotype of what people, what they think a disabled person should look like. Like even when I've had issues at workplaces and I'm like, they're like, you look fine when I'm having a crisis out of nowhere. And I'm like, I'm not just going to all of a sudden turn into like some, <laughs> you know, like just because you're having pain. Like, and so, like and even like, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And like in the UK, you have like um, disabled badge when you park, like when mm-hmm. you're parking somewhere. And even so many times on so many occasions, even people who are not ticket inspectors will be like that with attitude that's disabled parking when you're coming out because I'm coming out glamorous with hills. And I'm like, yeah, have a, and I, I bring back the attitude, like, yeah, have a badge. And it's just like, you're so like, it's so ignorant in a sense. Yes. It's just like, to say like, it doesn't mean like an old, an older person or someone with a wheelchair or something like that. That's not the face of disability. Like it's, and so I, that's why I absolutely love your channel. I did want to ask before we go back into um, yeah. knowing more about um with do you, have you ever because I know you kind of touched it earlier with like how like you were doing modeling and you were doing like you wear makeup and glam do you have you always felt like disabled or is it kind of you just felt like you because I've never mm. really like I, we would use it for like when I'm doing the badge I'll be like okay yeah I tick the dis- disability box because I want to get the disabled badge and it is technically a dis- disability and I do go yeah. to hospital and I do have the pain but I w- I don't I don't think I wouldn't wouldn't call myself a disabled person even though technically it is a disability yes I'm more of like I'm Barbara like yes I'm not like in this box what do you think on that I think it's a really amazing uh question first of all and thank you for asking me that because I think it's funny because so in my work, I, I work as a community health worker and so a part mm-hmm. of my job is I'm really passionate about disability education and what that looks like. And, you know, I had someone at work come up to me and say, oh, well, would you really categorise yourself as disabled though? Like is sickle cell disease a disability? And, you know, it came from a place of genuine, you know, um, curiosity. Yeah. It didn't come from a place of, yeah. of you know, ignorance. But yeah. for me, I think disability has such a negative connotation to it that people almost shy away from identifying as disabled. And I think, you know, I don't start off a sentence with, hi, I'm Sophia and I have a disability. <laughs> but also I think, you know, the question, do I identify as disabled? I think my answer would be yes, but the world doesn't. So the world looks yeah. at me and now that I've had a you know hip replacement, the world does not see me as disabled because there's nothing to suggest yeah. that there's anything wrong with me. Um, and I don't think that's necessarily a good thing because like yourself, when I try to go and park, and it's really hard because I have a disability parking permit as well and I should feel encouraged to use it. There are often days and weeks when I'm so anemic, I, I, don't, I can't walk far and yet yeah. I will literally park two rows down because I don't feel like I 
Well, it's not, it's it's not internal shame. It's like, I don't want to be judged. I'm scared because I've been in situations where I've gotten out of the car and I've had what you said, like the, the, um, the, the, the ignorant look, the like sass, the like, why are you parking there? (laughs) I don't want to have to deal with that. And that's something that internally I'm working through myself and, you know, coming to a place of strength, um, is actually something that I addressed in, um, my partner and I made a short film a few years ago called Perfectly mm-hmm. Sick. And in it, Ooh, I talk I'd about, like to see this. yeah, I'll send it to you. I talk about yeah. my experience with, um, you know, having a disability. And at the, in the mm-hmm. end scene, I pick up my permit and I look at it and then I put it back down on the table because it's this, this inner dichotomy of what do I do in that moment? Do I accept it and, yeah. and embrace it? Or, or do I feed into what society wants me to be, which is healthy on the outside at least? Mm-hmm. So I think for me, I think it's just about holding that space for myself and realizing, yeah, some days I am a boss babe and I've got yeah. it together. And some days I am vulnerable. I am weak. I am disabled. Like for me, disability isn't it's not an all encompassing kind of emotion. It's, it's on a spectrum. Like some days of the week I'm perfectly healthy. And then other days of the week I'm exhausted and in pain, you know, like it's not, it's so, sickle cell is so unpredictable and it's so hard to categorize from one day to the next, how you're going to feel that for me, like I identify with my disability when I feel it, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I think like your channel, The Sick Sexy, kind of changes the narrative of what disabled is. Because in a sense, we're like, am I disabled? Am I not? But it's like, that's not the point. You're who you are, who you are. You are who, what you love to do, what you, the kind of people you like to surround yourself with. And I think like I, what I loved about your channel the most was like, yeah, it's changing the narrative of the stereotype of what being disabled is and what disability is. And I think that's so important. And yeah, I know there's always going to be um, like ignorant people. And that's why it's so good to share and spread awareness and be like, no, dis- disabilities come in different forms, different shapes. Some of them are invisible. And I think with me, with the reason why I'm like, I never like care about the badge and stuff like that. It's literally because I'm like, these are part of the benefits and I'm going to use it. Like those times when I'm not well, I'm in excruciating pain, I'm going to enjoy the benefits of being able to park as close as possible and use my badge and that's why I'm never like because I'm just like I actually it, this is an eligible like this is an eligibility absolutely yeah yeah and, and so like, that's why I'm there yeah I, I I completely agree with you and I I hope that I have the like confidence <laughs> to do that and I'm I'm working on it I really am but like you know when you use the word benefit it's really interesting because like you didn't, you didn't ask for this. Like you don't have any control yeah. whatsoever on how you feel. And so, you know, what we see as like a, a benefit or a privilege for most people is just the norm. Like it's just the norm to be feel yeah, well enough so to walk true. into the shops. And so I think coming to it from that understanding as well is really important that for us, you know, and I don't like segregating people, like everyone has their own problems. Mm-hmm. We, I believe we all have, yeah. you know, our own personal story to share. But I think when you have sickle cell, it's almost like, it's almost like you feel like you can't ask for help, you know. So I think, yeah, it's really important. I think the parking thing is a huge, it's a it's a bigger issue. It's a social issue that we need to tackle yeah. as a society and recognise that, yeah, not every disability involves the wheelchair man, you know, like the little. Yeah. Which seems to be 
global. <laughs> like, come on, people. Uh, yeah, it's glo- <laughs> And I think another thing, um, it's also like, I don't know how this, I'm going to try and say this so it doesn't come across wrong, but, and it's not even some, so you know how we're like, when you see the person with the wheelchair or, or someone with a physical disability, like the crutches or something, I think the people, there's an, there's an automatic kind of like, I wouldn't say feelings, no, no. There's an automatic kind of like, oh, okay, maybe we can help this person or, you know, like there's that kind of automatic sense of like, oh, um, how can I put this word? Uh, like pity? Like if they said, not pity, but at the same time, like if it was in a workplace, people would be a bit more conscious. Mm. Whereas for us and people with an invisible illness where it's not apparent, and you're kind of glamorous and you're fabulous and you're wearing heels and stuff. I remember I had so many issues when I did internships and they never understood when I was like, I couldn't come in because sickle cell can attack last minute. So like you could have something that's at 10 and then nine, you literally get a crisis and you have to text and, and you can't come in. And that's so, and from their point of view, they're like, that's unprofessional, especially if they see how you are and generally and they think oh there's nothing wrong with- I've never heard of sickle cell she seems fine mm-hmm. you know and so they just think you're unreliable and I'm somebody who re- I'm s- reliability is so important to me but because of my sickle cell I think I book like sometimes I do brand ambassador jobs um like here and there before and I remember I booked some four-day gig and I was completely fine the night before and then the morning crisis chest couldn't go four days like they thought I was unprofessional, even though I told them I had sickle cell, they didn't know what it was. And it was the fact that it was just like, it was the first time I was doing something with them. And since it's been kind of hard to book any kind of like brand ambassador thing with them because they kind of felt like this person was unprofessional on the first job, couldn't come in four days straight. And it was just like, but (laughs) I had like, there's actually like, I would have come in if it wasn't like a chest pain, which I know if I left my house, it would get worse. So in that sense, I feel like people that look maybe more disabled can have more grace. I think that's the word Mm. I was trying to go for before. Mm. Like they get more grace. You see someone with crutches, you see someone with a wheelchair and there's a bit more grace because they're like, it's physical like the, they can physically, they physically look disabled. You can see it. Whereas if you're, you can see it. Whereas mm. someone like you, you're in a workplace and you know, you've got heels on and you're like, cause I always wear heels. Cause I like, that's just something that I've always done. And so like, I feel like there's not as much grace as I has experienced in my life and like going places. And I'm like, I don't get the same grace as in somebody else with, another health condition and that's I think an issue with like no one will, soul, no it, one will like get up off a, a seat on the bus to give you a <laughs> no. seat like yeah yeah even though you could be having like a crisis pain in your hips mm-hmm. a crisis mm-hmm. back pain where you're like I've had I think I had a church event I went to and on the way back I was with like three people and we're going getting the train and I just started getting a massive crisis but I literally just sat on the train and I didn't even bother saying, there was no point. They were going their own way. And I literally had to, my car was parked at one of the stations because this is before. Now I drive to the destination. I'm like, I don't care. I'm going to find the parking and stuff. But I had to like wait till I got to, it was still when I was living at my parents' house. So they live a bit further. So now I've moved closer to central London and closer to the, the hospital that I go to. But like before, and I remember just being there, like 
in excruciating pain on the train, not saying anything to anyone, just smiling and trying to, you know, so that, because there was, I felt like there was no point to be like, by the way, I probably haven't told you this. I have sickle cell and I'm having a massive crisis. And I remember when I got to the, my car, it was parked near the train, the tube station. I had to call like my mom and my sister. And I was like, I don't know if I can drive back. And I think they had to come and meet me. It was just like, but it's one of those things, like there was actually no point of saying it because it was just like, you know, when the pain is kind of starting and you can feel it's bad, but you, you've you had this for years, so you can kind of bear it, I guess. So you're like in pain, but you're still kind of like, I can still mm-hmm. kind of walk and stuff. But nobody would never know what I was going through in that train. Nobody would, like you said, um, give me a seat to, you know, so it's just like that whole kind of when you have an invisible illness and then you have a condition that nobody knows about really, like the general public. Cause yeah, we can connect with other warriors and we see some foundations around on social media. But in general, when I go out, especially in the industry I'm in and fashion and stuff, I barely meet anyone with mm. sickle cell. So it's kind of like, yeah, it's that sense where it's like, oh my God, like nobody really understands. Yeah, that's just, yeah. yeah no, look, it, but, it's, and it makes me emotional like hearing that story because I relate to it on so many levels, like that feeling. It's it's all it's very isolating to feel like you've built up this image of who you are by the way you dress, yeah. by the way you wear makeup, by the way you style your hair. Because you want to, but also because I think as women we feel we have to in the workplace, we have to have personal presentation. And yeah. there have been so many times when I, you know, have been walking to work and I'm maybe a little low on my hemoglobin and for me my triggers are um, – you know, exercise. And so if I'm running or walking, I will have a crisis in my chest. It'll start and it starts and it travels through my back. And then, you know, like I've gotten to work and I've gotten into the office and I've said good morning to everyone and I'm, I'm fine. You look fine. Yeah. You look- <laughs> yeah. But inside I'm like, how do I regulate myself back to a stage where this doesn't turn into a full blown crisis? Yeah. You know, and how do I get across to people that this isn't okay? Like it's not okay to just assume that because I look fine, that I'm fine, not, that you're, yeah. not going through some really hard shit behind the scenes. Sorry if I can't swear. But like <laughs> it, it's so, it's, it's interesting because like for me, because I don't have, I guess, um, you know, a wheelchair or something to signal that there is something wrong, my biggest ally has been my voice and it's really had to be. Yeah. And, and I've, I've probably let people into my life see, but you know, what goes on behind the scenes that I wouldn't ordinarily, like I recently um, held, uh, created like a mini documentary about my life to screen at work for International Day of Disability. And oh, I love that. I was terrified to do it because it was like, you know, I work for a global organization. It's it's a big organization. There's a lot of, you know, stakeholders and people who see me every day and who have no idea because I don't go around, despite the fact that I have a public YouTube yeah. channel, I don't walk into the office with a big placard saying I have a disability, <laughs> you know, and I don't talk about yeah. it. Like I'm a very, believe it or not, a very private person in my professional life. And so mm-hmm. when I'm there, I'm there to work. And even in my friend group, I don't really talk about my illness. People don't ask. And so for me, YouTube is a, a, an amazing outlet and Instagram because it allows me to really just have a bit of therapy and get things off my chest that I wouldn't. But in the workplace, it's like, 
we need more if you know if you're if you stay silent about your illness no one is ever going to know and your voice isn't yeah, going to be heard like so we can't expect progress and change if we aren't willing to be that progress and change and yeah. that sounds really corny so but true. you know so I created this documentary and part of that is filming myself in hospital so whenever I go to hospital I get my amazing partner to film me having a, a blood exchange and for a lot of people, the penny drops when they see that. And so when they see video clips yeah. and montage clips of me receiving blood, it's suddenly the penny drops and they're like, oh, oh, yeah. okay, like it is a big deal. Like this girl yeah. needs six bags of blood to survive. Like, oh, okay, like she might look fine yeah. on a Monday, but she just had this crazy thing on a Friday. So yeah, for me, like getting rid of that stigma and breaking down people's perceptions starts with sharing my story. And I can sit here and talk about sickle cell till the cows come home, but unless you actually see a snippet of what I go through, you're not, you don't get it. Like, so for me, you know, like inviting people behind that part of my life has been a very vulnerable, but also cathartic and, and ultimately positive experience and letting people know that you can look amazing and full of makeup and walk into hospital, but then you might walk out with swollen ankles from fluid buildup and mm, yeah. your makeup's halfway down your face from crying <laughs> and you, you feel like absolute <laughs> death. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's about sharing your story in, in an authentic way and that for me is through film. Yeah, and you do it really well. Like I love your channel and I love um, the way you express and you you tell people about your journey and it's very informative and it's very entertaining as well. And I think that definitely helps in the journey of like spreading awareness. Um, so you have faced um, many challenges with your sickle cell, including getting a hip replacement at the age of 28, which is very young. Um, please tell us about your journey and your experience and how you're able to overcome that and recover. Oh, my hip replacement takes me takes me back to some <laughs> some. I, I like to say that you know I, I didn't know pain and disability before I had a hip replacement, which sounds weird because you think you know you have a hip Is replacement, you? things will be perfect. But yeah, it was a very difficult time in my life, and it wasn't an easy decision to make at all. I you know had lived with avascular necrosis fifteen years of my life, and so I'd gotten very used to living with chronic pain and taking um, daily medication to deal with that. Um, I was on a medication called tramadol and was given it at the age of fourteen and tramadol is um, it's not an opiate medication, but basically it works as an antidepressant and a painkiller. And at 13, I wasn't told that. I was just given this medication and told, take this for your pain. So my whole life, basically, from the age of 13 to 28, I was on a medication that was, um, you know, changing my brain chemistry, essentially. It was, it almost was like a speed. I was this very positive, bubbly, happy person on it because I had to deal with like this chronic pain as well. And so at the age of 28, I realized that my body physically was was starting to fail and you know I thought I'm I'm young but I've I've yeah. lived with this for so long like it's it's time to get the surgery you know I was it, I was going yeah. to very dark places mentally and and you know just realizing that I didn't want to live the rest of my life with this quality of life like I think yeah. we all deserve to live pain free and 
Yeah. I wanted that opportunity. And so it was really funny because I went into the doctor's office and I was wearing heels stupidly, like why you would go to an orthopedic <laughs> surgeon with heels on. <laughs> he took one look at me and he was like, take your heels off and I want you to walk down the hallway for me. And, you know, that was very, <laughs> that was like, you know, very, I guess, raw and honest and like really took me down a few steps and um, I took my heels off and he walked and I like sat down and I, and I said, well, what do you think? And he said, he, the orthopedic surgeon looked at me and said, what are you doing next month on a Tuesday? And that's when it, it was reality for me. I was like, oh, shit, like we're oh, doing like, this. Yeah. Like I'm having a hip replacement, okay. And I, you know, said to him like, got to tie up a few loose ends with work and, you know, was basically just kind of buying myself some time. And, yeah, so I, I – went into hospital and I remember like the morning of my surgery, uh, I was put in a ward with, you know, all these like older people over the age of 70, 80, and they were all going in for hip replacements and coming out. And it felt a little bit like a production line. And I felt, you know, I felt obviously I was terrified. Like I was saying my last prayers to God and not sure if I was going to come out, even though statistically hip replacements are like tooth surgery these days, which I find bizarre, but they are really common. And so I knew statistically I'd probably be okay. But, you know, with sickle cell, you're told there are lots of more risks associated with surgery. And so I had that in the back of my mind. And my surgery was um, like postponed for six hours and I'm sitting there thinking, oh my God, what's going on? And I started to have mm-hmm. a panic attack and uh, this little voice in the back of my head was like, if you just take off the blood pressure cuff and the saline needle that's in your vein, we could run out of here. Like, you know, like leave the hospital, like let's yeah, go. And like here. six hours in, I'm like still waiting for this to happen and I start to like take off the blood pressure cuff and then the doctor arrives. <laughs> and he's like, we're ready for you. And I was like, well, I guess I'm not escaping to, now. Yeah. <laughs> so my last memory was like going into the operating theatre and I looked at my doctor and I said, please don't let me die. And the next thing I know, I've woken up, I'm like, packed with fentanyl and all sorts of things and I was so high and somehow I found my phone I don't remember doing this called my boyfriend and I was like babe I had a hip replacement (laughs) part of my brain that was still like crazy on high on drugs still remembered his number and yeah like it was a lot like it was it was it was hard, you know, like the first week in hospital I lost a lot of blood and um you know, I developed a fever. And so, you know, it was, it was, I was transferred to a high risk ward. It was a lot of heavy monitoring, but it's funny because despite all of that, and, you know, despite the fact that I, here I am, I have no control over my body. Suddenly the term disability really applied to me because I couldn't walk without a walker. I couldn't go to the toilet by myself. I needed constant care. But despite all of that, I still was like, right, I need my blow dryer. I need my PhD straightener because we ain't looking, you know, like this weave ain't looking dry and crispy in hospital. Like we're looking fly. And I did like I like I remember being there with like suitors and like blood and just like these disgusting pressure cuffs on my ankles and like so riddled with like blood pressure cuffs and like a saline drip and but there I'm like in the mirror like let me just 
Let me just put my Ruby Woo Mac lipstick on because, like, the physio might be cute today. Like, I was very much like, I need to feel good. And so it's crazy that, like, makeup throughout all my, like, crappy situations in life has gotten me through. And it sounds so corny, but the power of makeup, like, the power of feeling good in yourself, I think, is so important. And I think how you feel on the inside reflects on the outside and vice versa. So for me at that time, makeup was my saving grace. Um, But yeah, like the journey to go from, you know, because I I had to learn to walk again. And so that was a lot. Like I went through, you know, there was a time during my recovery that I – at the time I was going cold turkey from tramadol. So they'd stopped all medication and, um, you know, I was learning to kind of walk again without, without this medication. I'd relied on my entire life. And, you know, I got to a really great stage where I was walking again. I, you know, ditched the walker. I was independent. And in my head, I was like, well, this is supposed to make me happy, but I'm miserable. Like why, this was supposed to be like the moment, like in my head, I was yeah. like, right, I'm going to have a hip replacement. I'm going to be like pain-free. I'm going to be able to like live my life. And then like I had the surgery and I was depressed. And, you know, like I had to have a very frank conversation with my therapist. And my therapist said to me, like, you've been on a medication that's been an antidepressant your whole life. And now you're learning to live without that. Like, that's a lot. Yeah. And, you know, like I did it for a year, like I did it alone and then decided um, at the end of last year that actually I did need some help. And that, you know, was a very low dose antidepressant and regular therapy because, you know, I think in life and especially when you live with a chronic illness, you kind of expect that oh, you'll, the she'll be right. We had in Australia, we have this expression that's like, she'll be right. It's like a, Mm -hmm. you know, just harden up and get over yourself attitude, (laughs) you know, and like, no, actually it's okay to admit that you need help sometimes. And so I was so stubborn. I was like, no, I don't need medication for my mental health. Are you serious? Like it's only physical health that you need tablets for. Like, what do you mean? And so that for me was like, it was a, a, you know, getting over the shame of like, are actually psychological like your mental health actually matters a lot and if you can yeah. tackle that then that's really good and so yeah it was definitely a journey like having a hip replacement was I didn't expect it to have such an impact on my mental health mm-hmm. both positively and negatively like the first time I went for a run on the beach and like for anyone that's had a hip replacement uh. you're not supposed to run but well, it's not recommended because, well, you're not supposed to do high impact sports because you can dislocate it. Okay. Okay. So it's like, they kind of recommend not to, but you know, I'm 20, 28, 29 now. Um, I'm like, you've got so much years left. Like I need to go for a run on the beach, you know, I need to have my hot girl (laughs) moment. Yeah. (laughs) Baywatch slow motion. (laughs) I need to have my Baywatch moment and I had it and it was amazing. And like, Oh, oh, you know, like there's little things that everyone else takes for granted, like being able to go for a jog, you know, like the first time I went for a jog, I cried because I had never jogged in my life. Like I couldn't, I had never been in a physical place where I could do that. And so being able to do all the things that other people do was really liberating Mm -hmm. for me. It was, it was really nice. And I think now it's just like, it's a a balance for me not to get too excited because like, it's really easy for me to be like, well, I'm bionic woman now. I have 
I have like <laughs> I this, this hip that can do everything and it's like no calm down like, <laughs> like wait day by day <laughs> yeah <laughs> but I love that and I'm so happy for you and I'm so happy it was so successful and I feel like you deserve it and you deserve everything and um just I wanted to point on the tramadol thing which is so interesting because tramadol is also a medication that has been on like I put it as allergic. So every time I go into hospital, it's not on there because I took it once and I think I was hallucinating. So was this a pain medicine or was it like an yeah. antidepressant? Like yeah. did you take it when you were just in pain? So or was it like it was a pain relief to target um chronic pain. So because of my okay. so prior to having a hip replacement with avascular necrosis, I was in chronic pain every day. And so without tramadol, I couldn't hold down a job and I couldn't film YouTube and I couldn't live like a normal life. Yeah. And, and so I got very used to taking the medication and it became my baseline. And like you said, mm-hmm. like it, it made you hallucinate. For me, that was like it was normal for me to be operating on this weird like super positive, super happy, bubbly. Like people Mm. knew me as like this super bubbly girl that could light up a room. And I am still that girl, but that was like an artificial way of living and an artificial way of kind of pumping your brain up to be something it's not designed to be. And so I had to learn that it was okay if I wasn't always bubbly. It was okay if some days I had off days because that's actually quite human. It's okay to be sad sometimes. But when you take medication like that, you're always like happy and it's like this artificial happiness which can be really dangerous. And so now are you on it or no? No. So I went cold turkey after my surgery and, oh, it was hard, like the the withdrawals from that, like the fever, the sweats. It it was like, you know, like when you watch movies about drug addiction, all the the symptoms they talk about, like, you know, the fever and everything. I was going through all of that. I just didn't know that that's what it was. was, yeah. And that was scary. Like it was like I'm not a drug addict. Like what? You know, but these are are things that doctors don't tell you when you're 13 years of age and you're taking this. They don't say that, hey, by the way, you, you might not be consciously addicted to this, to this medication, but your brain is, your brain can't tell yeah. the difference. And so that was, yeah, that was a lot. And I, you know, like if I'm being completely honest, Barbara, I don't think my, my ability to, to make, you know, it's really, I guess, controversial because, cause they say that antidepressants basically like raise your ability to make, you know, happy hormones in the brain. Mm-hmm. And, I think after tramadol, because I'd been on it for so many years, I don't think my brain ever returned to a baseline of that. I think, Mm -hmm. you know, like, you know, unfortunately or whatever way you want to look at it, I will always need maybe a little bit of help. And that for me, you know, antidepressants have worked really well. It, It took a bit of like trial and error trying to find the right one. And, you know, like when I, you know, when we try and start a family, I don't want to be on it. I will, you know, want to go yeah. off of it eventually. But I think for me, I needed that extra help. Yeah. And you've been through a lot. So I think it's it's normal to to need to have something like that. And I think now, like, at this age is also really good time to really focus and be like, okay, yeah, I'm not going to use it anymore. And you're still so young. So you have so many more years of like life to live without it. And it's so crazy what you said about like some of the medication they give people at such a young age, like 
even from five or four, mm-hmm. you have like, when you have a crisis, you go to hospital, morphine is mm. something that they're giving. And you're like, since like children, mm-hmm. it's quite shocking. And it's just like, yeah, it's crazy. Cause it's just like, I guess the, the hospital is just like, I guess the pain is just too much. And this is the only thing. And you actually think about it like, wow, it's, it's shocking. And it's also a blessing that we haven't grown up to be addicted. Yeah. Like, I mean, yeah. I guess, because obviously with you, like you handle, like I feel like every person with sickle cell handles their crises in different ways. But would you say that yeah. growing up taking the same sorts of medications, would you say it's had an impact on your mental health? Or would you say that for you, you're, you've been able to kind of like distance yourself from that? Because it's always interesting to hear other people's oh, yeah. experiences. <laughs> So for me, I actually hate taking medication in general. And I grew up with my mom because, so my uncle passed away in 2011 and he was only 38 and he took a lot of strong medication and he ended up having a hole in his lung, which ended up getting to complications and why he passed away. So for that, my mom has always been very conscious, even before when he was still alive, she was very kind of like bear the pain. She used to make me like, banana tea which is like she'd boil the skins of the banana and stuff like that and so hers even till today she'll buy me a bunch of vitamins or a bunch of like stuff and she's always been a way of like she hates it when I take a lot of strong medication not hates it like obviously she knows when I'm in pain she'll tell me take it get better and stuff like that but I think she's always trying to get me to find another way like she'll always say prevention is better than cure growing up she was always like you know, say no, don't go and do this and then have a crisis. Mm. Like don't go out with friends if you're going to end up being cold and get a crisis. So she's always had that kind of way around it. So it's kind of built me to kind of limit the amount of medication I take in terms of like, I would literally like listening. I feel like listening to my body and knowing what my triggers are, like my menstrual cycle and stuff like that. So with my journey with the medication is only when I'm in hospital or when I have like a massive crisis. Mm. And even that I don't like to take like a lot of it, like for a long period of time. And I'm just like, I'm even like antibiotics. Like when I leave the hospital and I have to take, even that's hard enough for me. I actually don't like taking medication. So I don't know if it's been like a huge impact because sometimes even when I have a crisis, I start with ibuprofen and I'll be in pain for hours mm. and it wouldn't be until like maybe 5am where I'm like, actually, mm. <laughs> I think I need the morphine. Mm. But I would actually start with ibuprofen. I would go to like codeine, oh, codigamol, and then I would eventually go to codeine and then it'll be like, oh, it's not going away. I have to. So I've kind of built up that thing of like, but then I guess like, I'll it affects people so differently. So I can't say to someone, oh yeah, just take ibuprofen for your pain and see how it is in two hours. Cause it could be worse or it could be, but I think it's just, for me, it's always just been like, I, I've always just had a negative thing about medication from mm. my mom, from like um, seeing my uncle and stuff like that, that I've just always kind of been like, it's a last resort. Like that association like, for you is, has always been like, you've seen like negative results from it and so you don't want to go down that same that makes sense yeah I think that trauma as well and I'm so sorry about your uncle you know because that is it's quite young and and it's it's not you know I think it's it's the statistic that people focus on the most is how uh, you know, how high our mortality rate is. But I mean, you know, on the same token, yeah. there are a lot of people who live very, very old ages yeah. with sickle cell. I think cell. I know a woman, yeah, I think I knew a lady, she was like 80s or 90. 
or something. So she lived quite young, which is good. And she was another person who didn't really, she tried to avoid going to hospital. I think it's the medication. And I think sometimes it's just, you, you have no choice. Mm. Like the pain is too bad. This is the only thing. Cause you're literally in excruciating pain. I remember, um, so I have like an exercise bike. I always try to get like little um, cheap gym equipment. Amazing. And I never use it. <laughs> and I never use it. And then um, I remember one day I was feeling self-conscious, which was so stupid. And then I was just like, oh, um, I just finished my menstrual cycle. And I was like, oh, I'm fine. I jumped on it, did 20 minutes, literally had the worst chest pain. I could not breathe. Like, wow. And my mom was visiting us and my sister, my mom was screaming. She was like, and my sister had to be the calm person because I, my chest pain was so like severe that it felt like I couldn't breathe. So they called the ambulance and I was literally like, I, like, I, like it felt like I was dying. Like I, I felt like I was having like, this is it. Like you're going to die because like you can't breathe. So it was so like, eventually my sister had to like force the like morphine into my mouth just so that it could help with ease the pain a little bit. And when I eventually went to the hospital and they were, they were like, Oh, it's just a chest pain. Cause I was like, was it actually like something well and they're like it was just a chest when I think it was just the seriousness of it and then the panic kind of added to that but it was because like I just finished my menstrual cycle and I know I'm fragile but then I was kind of like oh I've been eating a lot of food and I'm gaining weight and all these like trivial things that don't matter and I just jumped on this bike all because of like weight and it ended up having a massive crisis and I'm just like stuff like that no like just yeah I'm like if I have to like wait another week before I can work out or whatever, and like you'll do it. Yes, if I've yeah yeah. yeah so. Would, so at that time, because like what you're describing to me sounds like acute chest syndrome, you know, where your where your lungs. My understanding of acute chest syndrome is when you have a crisis, it affects your lungs and your your lungs' ability to you know um, expand properly. Um, that to me sounds like that's what you were experiencing. Is that yeah, that's what. That's what I thought. But when I went to the hospital and the pain had gone down, they were like, no, because I've had, I've, I know some um, sickle cell friends who have had that. And they said that it was so bad. They were in hospital for a month. So that didn't happen to me, but I don't know if it could have escalated to that. I don't know. Like, but when I got to the hospital, they were like, it's just a normal chest pain. Mm. And I think that's a big fear to me because I've heard of it and I've heard so many people have had it and it can be really like, fatal it is fatal yeah Yeah. and it's it's not it's one of the less I guess talked about you know Mm -hmm. comorbidities of sickle cell disease like when we hear the word sickle cell we think uh affecting other organs in the body strokes you know Mm -hmm. heart attacks things like that and when you think of the word acute chest syndrome it's almost has a uh it almost doesn't really explain what it is, what's actually happening in the body and how it impacts on the lungs. And so I think any, you know, I'm the same. Whenever I have chest pain, I treat it incredibly seriously. And, yeah. you know, it's really, and that, I mean, that's that's something that a lot of people don't talk about is the anxiety that's associated with sickle cell. You know, it's a yeah. constant it's a constant balancing act of, is this anxiety? Am I having a panic attack? Do I need to call an ambulance? Like I've had situations where I've gone for a run 
and I've had chest pain and I've called an ambulance because I'm like, it could be acute chest syndrome. I don't know. Yeah. And then like I get to hospital and they run all the tests and they're like, you're fine. And so it's like, yeah. it's a balance between you don't want to be a hypochondriac and have people not believe you. But at the same time, you're, you're constantly told, like I'm constantly told yeah. by my hematology team, if you have symptoms, you need to go to hospital. Like, Yeah, always. It doesn't matter if it's not what it what you thought it was or it's not that bad it's always better to go because you never know you could be if you don't god forbid like something could happen at home so I think always Absolutely. Or, and even if when you call like the hospital and you, you the moment you say you have sickle cell or you have like chest pain they're like come to the hospital like straight away they're like come in so it's just like that kind of you have to check it out. Even most times it may just be a normal crisis. It's so yeah. important to just like. Absolutely. Like, you know, it's it's interesting because, and, you know, like I think when you talk about triggers and you, you talk about how your menstrual cycle is a trigger for you, it's I think it's fantastic when you know what your triggers are um, because I'm still learning. Like I think as well when you're having regular treatment, it's very easy to become complacent. And so because I have regular blood exchanges, I don't have many crises, um, which I'm very, you know, I'm very fortunate for and and grateful. But it also means that when I do have crises, I sometimes don't know what triggers them. And so like my most recent hospitalization was late last year and I we'd gone out for dinner and I'd had chicken and I got food poisoning and you know I thought you know whatever food poisoning I vomited and you know went back to bed went to sleep and in the morning I had a crisis in my back and I for me crises are abnormal and I'm like why am I having a crisis (laughs) yeah and it's because I was dehydrated from vomiting and you know so I went to hospital and you know, they were like, you're dehydrated. We have to give you this, that, and the other, and, you know, water and blood and everything else. And for me, I was like, okay, so now I know that that's my trigger. Is yeah, I've got a sensitive tummy and so I've got to be aware of the food that I'm putting in my body. So, that, yeah. you know, that time of the month when I know I'm going to be extra anemic and, and leading up mm-hmm. to my hospital – I make sure that I don't eat at restaurants that I don't feel comfortable at or, you know, where the food's yeah. not cooked properly because I don't know how it's going to affect me. Um, so I think it's so important to know what your triggers are because a lot of people, um, I think when you don't have a chronic health condition, and this is an assumption, but I don't think you're as in tune with your body because you're not constantly kind of listening for signals and, and yeah. choose. I think when you have sickle cell, it's um, – you're very in touch with your body. Like you, yeah. you know the difference between aches and pains. And so, you know, it's really important, yeah, you know. So true. Yeah. Always. I'm like, what are you saying? Literally. <laughs> you're like, God damn it, this crisis better not turn into something I can't handle. Not today, God. You're not, yeah, I've got a busy week. Okay. <laughs> Literally, I um TikTok has been <clears throat> a really like creative outlet for me and, and a kind of way that I inject humor into having, um, you know, an illness. And I wanted it to be a byproduct of YouTube because I feel like YouTube is a very Mm -hmm. kind of serious um, place, similar to a podcast. Like Mm -hmm. you you do tend to be a little bit more grounded and I wanted TikTok to be Mm -hmm. fun. And so I sometimes film videos where it's like I'll film a video and and it's like um, you looking – like a TikTok I filmed recently was – you're looking at your calendar of all of the things that you have to do for the week. And then sickle cell pops around the corner. Oh, and there's anemia around the other corner. And oh my God, there's COVID <laughs> like popping out from the ceiling. Like, and that's the reality of I mean, like chronic <laughs> illness. <laughs> there's always something. 
I think I've yeah I think I've seen it you shared it on Instagram as well I, I think I, I loved all like the little videos and stuff it's so creative and speaking about that like you're I would say you're definitely a creative person with your writing you're an author um I'm reading your book at the moment very <laughs> it's good your writing skills are incredible and and then you also have your YouTube how do you think um your creativity plays a role in the recovery and management of your yeah I think I think for me creativity like yourself is is an outlet where I can just escape Uh, as much as I think it's important to embrace sickle cell and and all the things that come with that and talk about it I think it's also important to have your escape from it and just from real life really so for me writing has always been you know like since I was five I had a typewriter and I would write stories of like fantasy worlds and witches and I think even as a child I knew that was my safe space and my happy place and as an adult it's encompassed with you know like I, I always feel like I was born to write because I I have characters in my head, have conversations and like I storyline ideas. And so writing my book for me was, you know, important for many reasons because it allowed me to embrace this part of myself that I had kind of suppressed for so many years. You know, like we're not taught as kids that it's okay to want to be a writer or an actress or do something creative. It's always like follow the straight and narrow road, get a nine to five, like, you know, don't pursue the, the things that are, you know, like there's one JK Rowling and there's a thousand other writers, you know. So, but I think for me, you know, it's not about at the end of the day, it's not about the money and it's not about the success for me. It's that feeling you get when you are fully immersive in something that you love. Like, yeah, and I'm sure you can relate so true. like your, know, your business yeah. and, you know, the legacy that you've built and the amazing fashion that you create, Barbara, like you're, you can tell that like your heart and your soul is genuinely in each piece of clothing that you create. And Aww. that's, you know, like that, that to me, I feel like we're all put in, on this planet with a gift and we're all yeah. designed to like give something back to the world. And so that for me is like my my writing, my my creativity in some small way, yeah. like is giving back and also just escaping into something beautiful and happy and something that's not tainted with the day-to-day challenges of life. It's just a space yeah. for me and a space to be able to provide maybe happiness to another person to escape into a world that is so you know different and just you know like for me as a as a reader as well like I love stories that are so just outlandish and I like yeah. escaping into like psychological thrillers and like reading novels like yeah. Gone Girl and you know like just worlds that are so not normal and I want to create characters and stories that make people feel something and just escape Mm. for half an hour with a cup of coffee like it's all I want yeah oh and I love it and you're doing so well with it like it's it's incredible um thank you so much for joining me and sharing your incredible inspiring story you inspire me every day I love your content and I actually can't wait till I either come to Australia or you come to London so we can have a girls day out I cannot (laughs) wait we will make it happen I am manifesting it I am manifesting it Barbara I swear and I have a lot of family in London as well so that 
Do you know what? Like, yeah, maybe September, <laughs> maybe. So I'm like, <laughs> I love that model. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah. So um, please tell us about your Instagram pages, your platforms. Um, I'm going to put the in the description, but tell us like everything that we can follow you on and follow your incredible journey. And if you have any exciting projects coming up. So you can follow me at my YouTube channel at youtube.com, the six sexy, the six sexy on Instagram and TikTok. Um, my personal Instagram, which is Sophia and Arada, where I share a little bit about my personal life. And in terms of projects, I am, I'm actually, um, have recently partnered with, uh, I don't want to say too much, but it's basically, mm-hmm. um, about women exercising and what that looks like with sickle cell. So I've recently um, partnered with a really amazing person um, over in America um, and her organization where they, um, yeah, support reproductive health and and really try and shine the light on sickle cell warriors. So really excited for that to come out. I love that. And I'll definitely be tuning in because I I need help in that department. (laughs) Oh, you and me both, girl. Honestly, exercise is, (laughs) it's a love-hate relationship. I know. (laughs) But thank you so much. It's always a pleasure. I had an incredible time. And yay. Okay, so go follow her and follow her journey. Thank you so much. Thank you, Barbara. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening to today's Living with Sickle Cell podcast. Please subscribe to our channel so that you'll be able to get updates for our next episodes. Um, Like our Instagram pages, which are Gideon's underscore treasure and Atelier underscore Dimabai. The description will be in the um, podcast notes. And um, if you would like to be a guest speaker and share your story, please send an email to barbara at gideonstreasure.org.uk thank you so much for listening love you and god bless Mwah.